Hello, everyone. I'm an indigenous elder of the Eastern Cherokee and Muscogee tribes, and you're listening to the, the Awakened, Awakened Underground, Underground Podcast. This podcast represents the opinions and experience of its hosts and guests for educational and informational purposes only. Psychedelic plant medicines are sacred technologies that have been stewarded by indigenous people around the world since before recorded history. As these indigenous wisdoms enter the mainstream culture, we ask you to please operate from a place of respect and reciprocity. As to the exploitation and colonization of First Nations people. It's imperative to use immense caution when embarking on your journey to work with psychedelic medicines, as they are powerful tools for human transformation that are not to be taken lightly. Information shared within this podcast should not be taken as medical advice. Awakened Underground, its guests and partners are not liable for any actions of your choosing. With that said, we, we trust, trust you will make responsible and ethical choices under your own free will. <laughs> What's up, gang? I'm your host, Cody Blue, and this episode's called Healing Addiction. This is your brain on drugs. This is your brain on drugs. America's public enemy number one. To a new and dangerous area, the use of hallucinogens. Bad trip. Both call it not a war on drugs, but a war on consciousness. You are now entering the Awakened Underground Podcast. I woke up today and saw a text message from my longtime assistant and dear friend telling me that he has been struggling with a Xanax addiction and was voluntarily checking himself into a rehab facility for the next 40 days. In many ways, I feel like I failed him. I knew something was up and I tried to help guide him to working with plant medicines as I know how effective they are at treating addiction, but the lack of availability in the States and the cost of traveling to these retreat centers in South America kept him from receiving the healing benefits of these medicines. My greatest fear in making this show has always been that in some shape or form, we may potentially be encouraging people down a path of drug abuse and addiction, but that is not our intention. Our intention is to educate people on alternative medical treatments that do not mask symptoms, but help treat the root cause of one's suffering, which left unhealed can lead to addiction as it is not the drugs that make the drug addict, but rather the need to escape reality. Behind all addiction, there is pain, and the resistance of that pain leads to suffering. And that suffering leads to the abuse of drugs, sex, food, work, media, technology, and virtually anything external from the self that can offer a temporary reprieve from said suffering. But the truth is, the only way out is through. The liberation of pain comes when we stop running from it, but instead face it, sit in it, feel through it, and listen to what it has to teach us. As our emotions are truly our compass in this reality. Pain and love are our greatest teachers. We can either follow love or push through pain or beholden to the calculations, reductions, and narratives of our rational mind. 
The choice is ours. But the person we are becoming and the better world we are trying to build for ourselves only exists in facing and listening to the truths gleaned from our emotions. Pain and love are the only two truths that transcend all narrative. Everything else is a shade of these two polarities. This is what I have come to learn through my own personal battle with addiction, which began when I was a child, the day I was prescribed ADHD medication. I never thought or felt like I was addicted. I always took a very small dose and would even take weekends and vacations off the pharmaceutical drugs to reset my tolerance levels, giving me a thinly veiled illusion of control. But over time, the side effects of the medication intensified and the doctors little by little would increase my dosage and add additional drugs to balance me out. Looking back at this, I now feel that beyond the blatant corruption of the pharmaceutical giants and the limited efficacy of their treatment model, the most nefarious thing about pharmaceutical drugs, especially for treating mood disorders, is that it is an addiction model, a subscription model that does not heal, but only masks symptoms while hooking the patients to its drugs that by design will keep them coming back for more and more and more, purchasing until the day they die. As companies like Netflix have demonstrated to all of us, this subscription model is great for business and has helped create the $1,170 billion addiction drug model that is now so powerful, it has hijacked our media, government, and medical systems entirely, convincing us that it is the safest, best, and only model for treating illness. But in reality, the only thing this formula is best at is creating professional patients and lifelong addicts. And the worst part is the addiction mindset of reaching for the quick fix so we can get back to business as usual, only stunts our personal growth and stifles the collective evolution of our species. This mechanism is training us to disregard the wisdoms held within our own emotional compass and to not feel into the pain of our experience that is desperately trying to teach us exactly what needs changing in ourselves, in our relationships, and in the world. This mindset and model of medicine is the real gateway drug to addiction and substance abuse. For the person who needs an on switch, needs an off switch. I myself, after 22 years of perceived sobriety, turned to cannabis at the end of the day to alleviate the negative symptoms from the crash of the pharmaceutical medications. I have to say that I view cannabis as a sacred plant medicine that can be used for good or abused. But I personally would not be where I am today as this plant changed the way I view mind-altering substances and altered states of consciousness forever. But at the same time, I could be honest with myself and say that there was a time period where I was abusing cannabis as a crutch for many years to cover up the destructive side effects of the pharmaceutical meds I was on. 
instead of facing the facts and kicking the farmer drugs to find a better way forward, I would bury my problems in a cloud of cannabis smoke. In my mid-twenties, when I discovered the labeled side effects of the drugs I was on, the environmental destruction chemical drugs cause, and the corruption of the pharmaceutical giants that made them, I was able to set out on a journey to quit. But that rendered more difficult than I realized, because up until that point, I was unaware I was addicted. I weathered over a month of crippling withdrawal and did not feel a semblance of normalcy until a year's time. And even after that, I still struggled with symptoms of depression, anxiety, and ADHD. Beyond the physical withdrawal, the most insidious part of this experience was facing the mental addiction these medications bring. As after a lifetime of being drugged by the authority figures in my life and achieving career success while on these medications, I had come to believe that I would never be as smart, skilled, or talented of a person without the pharmaceutical drugs in my system. This belief imbued me with a tremendous amount of self-doubt and stayed with me for many years and was not healed until many ceremonies working with psychedelic plant medicines. I can gratefully say now that thanks to the help of psychedelic plant medicines, I no longer struggle with mood disorders or chronic addiction. But even more importantly, these tools have helped me heal myself of the pain and programming that invited those conditions into my life in the first place. Looking back after all these years, standing in the shadow of the COVID-19 pandemic, we as a people are experiencing a meteoric rise in substance abuse disorders, addiction, and overdoses, with more deaths and hospitalizations coming from pharmaceutical drugs than all illicit substances combined. But beyond illegal drugs and pharmaceutical dependency, I believe that there is an all-pervading addiction mindset in the West that no statistic will ever be able to truly quantify, as it doesn't matter the object the addiction mindset is expressed through. It only matters that as long as we are sedating, escaping, and reaching for an external source to alleviate our suffering, we will never learn to stare into that void until it opens up and teaches us exactly who we are and exactly how things are supposed to be. What if the best treatment for getting people off of opioids like heroin and oxycodone was discovered over 50 years ago by a 19-year-old heroin junkie in Brooklyn. It's a West African root bark. It only comes from one country, Gabon, a little country in Africa. It's mostly used as an addiction interrupter, uh, especially for opiates. It attaches to the opiate receptors, turning the withdrawal and the cravings off. Ibogaine is a ruthlessly introspective 24-hour trip that rewires the way your brain hmm. views addiction and has a high level of uh, effectiveness, like just, just killing the desire to do opiates. Uh, ayahuasca has been fantastically successful in getting people off harmful addictions. More than half leave completely free of their addiction, never return to it, and don't even have withdrawal symptoms. Not surprisingly, Ibogaine is controversial. The modern use of Ibogaine began with Howard Lotsoff, an American heroin addict turned scientific researcher who claimed it cured his heroin addiction. 
On today's episode, we are going to explore the nature of addiction and how psychedelic medicines can be used as an addiction interrupter and a tool for healing the pain at the source of that addiction. We have two incredible guests with us who are going to share with us two unique vantage points on addiction. The scientific perspective with Dr. Alan Davis, a professor at John Hopkins University, and the shamanic perspective with Warren Flesh, a practicing medicine man who healed himself of addiction working with sacred plants. The Awakened Underground Podcast. I am a clinical psychologist. So I'm full-time at Ohio State University. Um, I am assistant professor of social work and psychiatry here. I work uh, primarily uh, in the research area of psychedelic medicine. Uh, I also am a faculty at Johns Hopkins. I work uh, remotely with the team there. Uh, I also am a co-investigator on research trials at the University of Michigan. Uh, the bulk of my research is on uh, the topic of looking at psilocybin as a adjunct to therapy for people with mental health problems. And then I also uh, am looking at fast-acting tryptamines like 5-MeO-DMT and other psychedelics that uh, haven't really been well studied yet in clinical settings to try and see whether or not uh, they can be also helpful in clinical uh, populations. I started my training of uh, gosh, about 15 years ago as a uh, substance use uh, counselor working with uh, folks who were struggling with addiction. And it was during that time that I wanted to really figure out how to help them the best I could. I I noticed that they a lot of the folks that I was uh, trying to help in, you know, the traditional, you know, addiction treatment setting weren't really getting the help they needed. And uh, I didn't understand why that was the case. You know, all of the the structure was telling me that if you take the, the drug, so to speak, away from the individual, that they should get better. And that didn't really seem to be what was happening. And so that didn't make any sense to my young clinician brain. And so I said I needed to go and get more training and get a PhD and and figure out why that was the case. And lo and behold, I I went and uh, got a PhD and discovered that all the things I thought I knew about drugs and treatment and clinical things was wrong. (laughs) And so uh, here I am. And I never went back to do that work, but I um, uh, found myself doing a lot of different things. I mean, I guess one of the first things we should probably talk about just because circling back upon what you said initially which was that you were an addiction and substance abuse counselor and that this is such an interesting paradigm because it seems very counterintuitive to heal drug abuse with another quote-unquote drug right so could you speak to what you're finding in terms of people who are struggling with addiction uh, and also how, it, you know, the difference between between a substance of abuse and perhaps these entheogenic or psychedelic plants or psychedelic medicines, how they are different, how that this is breaking the mold of putting somebody on a, a prescription or a subscription or a, something they have to keep taking to sort of sedate themselves or make themselves feel better. Well, it's really a, it's a whole different way of thinking and conceptualizing what you are putting into someone's emotional and physical and spiritual body. Um, 
And I think that the idea to come back to my misguided understanding of what addiction was, the idea that you can take a drug of abuse um, out of someone's body and somehow that's going to heal an addiction is as misguided as the idea that you can put a drug into someone's body and that's magically going to cure an ailment without some other uh, important element being included. And so I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, we've been we've been pushing pills down people's throats for decades and they've been lacking some really important ingredients that um, without those important ingredients, it hasn't really been that effective. When you talk about the important ingredients that are missing uh, from the sort of the pharmacological model of treating people with mental health addiction and mood disorders, what are those missing components? You talked about sort of the mind-body-spirit connection for a moment, but that can be a bit of a progressive model for many more traditionalist thinkers. So if I start back with that addiction model, you know, one of the things that I try to help my students and and the folks that I uh, train in the concepts of understanding what addiction is to begin with, is it's the same idea about why the topic and the, the, the problem of addiction does not exist inside of a drug to begin with, right? Most people think that if you take the drug away, you're going to solve addiction, which is which is not true. But that also means that you don't create an addiction by putting a drug inside your body, right? Addiction does not live inside of a drug. If addiction lived inside of the drug, then when you take the drug away, addiction would leave the body. So what that tells me is that addiction is much more complex and it involves more ingredients than just the drug. There also exists a biological component of that addiction. There exists an environmental component of that addiction. There is also a spiritual component of that addiction. These processes, there's a relational component of that addiction, right? There's all of these different dynamic forces that co-create the the, the environment for that addiction to unfold. And so when you go when a person is experiencing that problem and they go to a treatment facility that then says, oh, well, here, the the thing you need to do is stop taking this drug and you're going to be fine. That is in and of itself an inadequate prescription for a solution. And so in the same way, you can conceptualize a drug treatment, like let's say an SSRI for depression, Um, is also an inadequate treatment for a condition that is also inadequately defined as a singular thing, right? I think that every mental health problem is inadequately defined in some way, right? We have a tendency, I think, in our culture to think of mental health diagnoses as a singular unit of a problematic thing, right? Addiction is one thing and it exists in some kind of box and a paradigm that we can that we can label and we can fit nicely into a diagnosis. And that is in and of itself just a problematic way to think about it. But the same is true for depression. The same is true for anxiety. The same is true for PTSD. We've put them into these boxes and labels thinking that that is like somehow a true concept of what they are. Right. What in terms of psychedelic therapies, what is the best therapy you found for treating addiction? I know you've done work with Ibogaine. Uh, and I, I, I've read studies that it's a fantastic alternative to conventional, uh, you know, rehabilitation facility facilities. Uh, is there any medicines in addition to the, to Ibogaine as well? You found that treat addiction? 
So we've done some survey research looking at ibogaine and also 5-MeO-DMT, as well as uh, psilocybin and also LSD. And we've been looking at data showing that across all of these different uh, substances that people are reporting beneficial uh, effects from uh, their uh, experiences. So uh, it really seems like there there seems to be kind of getting at what you were describing with this, uh, this concept of understanding these core components that underlie a variety of different uh, painful emotional states, right? These wounds that, um, that, that oftentimes, oftentimes get masked or get uh, avoided um, in an addiction process or in any type of mental health process, that psychedelic therapy and psychedelic experiences in general have a tendency, I think, to reveal these underlining wounds and spaces that had been avoided and in part were the things that were co-creating the space for those problems to manifest. Um, and it's in that what I, I call a transdiagnostic conceptualization of, of how psychedelics are, are seemingly so effective across all these different types of problems that we can start to understand why our understanding of this compartmentalization of mental health is so flawed to begin with. Because if the compartmentalization theory was an effective theory, then how is it possible that we can have a treatment like psychedelic therapy that somehow is addressing all of these different types of problems in the same way? What's very, very interesting about this is that I am, right, I'm a professional screenwriter and director, tell stories. Suffering does not exist in a story without space-time. If I want to create tension in a scene, I need to know place, there's a bomb over there. I need a ticking clock. You got 10 seconds to get there. And I need no stakes. It's going to destroy this family and this home that doesn't know, right? Those three things. When you get rid of space time, you remove this separation. You get to eternity, unity. And there's a certain thing you can start to do with the psychedelic model when you start to realize that these mystical eternal experiences give you a framework to work backwards from what is separating you from the eternal? What is separating you from this connectedness? And you may be healed in that moment and you can go back to your same life and then you're going to have to start to make those changes from the lessons you learned in those experiences. Is this something that you're finding with, with your patients that they are some of them or many of them healed immediately and that's it they go back to their life or do you find that there is some homework that they have to do there are practices they have to put into place to keep them connected to that eternal feeling that healed feeling this is one of the most challenging parts of the clinical work with psychedelics is that especially in the stage that we're in with the research, because everything is so controlled right now to get things done in a research setting. And what I mean by that is that everything has to be uh, in a research setting. Everything is, you know, 
you can only meet with people a certain amount of times. Everything is done in a very kind of strict protocol. Uh, for example, they only can have a certain number of doses of the medicine. It has to be done with only a certain number of visits. Um, it's very unusual, right? Because in a clinical setting outside of research, you would have a lot more flexibility to spend time with people, to get to know them, to work with them clinically, et cetera. Um, and I start with that just to help explain and orient to, you know, imagine someone coming into a clinical research study to have a psychedelic experience in this type of setting and to undergo, you know, the therapy part first, which is about eight hours of therapy before they ever get to a psychedelic session. Um, they have their first psychedelic session. And for some of them, they will have this mystical, insightful, sometimes challenging, sometimes all of it at the same time experience. And they will have a profound change. And then they will leave that that setting and go home back into the environment, back into the social setting, back into the community, back into the city and town where all of the same pulls, all of the same cues, all of the same distractions, all of the same things that were there before the experience, right? And as I was talking about before with the, our understanding of how addiction comes up in someone, right? That it's not just about what goes into the body. It's about the environment. It's about the relationships. It's about all of the things that co-create these things. And in the same way, just having the psychedelic experience and going back into all of those same structures, it's only going to last a certain amount of time unless you can also change as best you can those other structures, right? So to kind of dig down a little bit deeper, we'll have some people who have these breakthroughs, they have these deeply healing moments, and they'll go back into their lives and they'll start working hard, right? Like they'll start, you know, cr creating a different kind of space in their environment. They'll make changes in their relationships because they'll realize like this relationship isn't serving me in the way that it needs to, or this job isn't aligned well with like the thing I want to spend my life doing, or I want to go create art more and I'm not doing it. And why is that? And they'll start integrating their, their new understanding of themselves and what they want to be doing with their time in a new way. And, and that's, that's the kind of, reaction and integration process that typically comes along with uh, the stronger likelihood that they're going to maintain the benefit and the gains that they're getting from that healing experience. We also have people, though, that go back into those environments and it's difficult to make those types of changes and they get pulled back into the old patterns and the old, the old ways of thinking and, and believing be because those are the more rigid pathways, right? Those are the the more well-worn paths through the forest that have well-defined uh, pathways. They have well-defined um, hikes through that <laughs> through that um, through that forest. So uh, the people get pulled back in, and and it's difficult then not to understand why uh, the depression might come back, or the addiction might come back, or the anxiety might come back. What is a more holistic comprehensive model look like to you? Well, it's something that I've been focused on in another part of my professional world, which is uh, focusing 
now that we have this research well underway and hopefully in the coming years we'll see these medicines start to be approved by FDA and at that point there'll be a dissemination to the public hopefully um but that will only be as successful as we are in our ability to transform community and family and culture and that will not happen just by legalization or medicalization so we have to create and foster a change in vocabulary and a change in our conversation about understanding what these experiences are and how we can support one another in having them and talking about them and then making the changes that one might feel inspired to make after they have these type of changes because if someone comes into a medical center to have this experience or if they go to south america to have this experience or if they go to a you know wherever they go to have this uh, an experience like this and they go back to their family and their family discounts it when they hear about it that'll shut it down. Like that person might never talk about it again. They might never go try to have the experience again, or they might immediately question the reasons what, like anything that they were starting to believe was true about it um, might get pushed down inside. And that is the absolute worst possible outcome that could come from an opening, perhaps a first opening that that spirit had in life. So, I think we have to start thinking beyond the individual and to these larger social and community systems in order to better figure out how this type of ex experience and the people who have them are, are going to um, be accepted into the broader culture. Wow. Have you done any other studies for other ailments, maladies, PTSD, palliative, CTE, mm -hmm. anything like that? Yeah, we've looked at this in a number of ways in which an individual can adapt and, and understand their own emotional functioning. Uh, so for example, the, the more you're able to experience your emotions and experience your internal self and your internal uh, uh, emotional self as things come up in your life uh, and not avoid those experiences uh, and to do the things that are important to you in the context of uh, whatever's going on in your life, that the more you're able to adapt and, and kind of flexibly go through life in that way, the more likely it is that you are not going to be experiencing problems with things like PTSD or depression. And so the, we call that psychological flexibility. Well, we measured that in these individuals. And what we found was is that there was a significant increase in psychological flexibility from before to after their Ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT experience. So they had a increase in their ability to become more psychologically flexible after their psychedelic experience. And when 
when we looked at the relationship between becoming more psychologically flexible and decreases in PTSD symptoms and depression symptoms and anxiety symptoms, across the board, they were all significantly related. So it looks like at least as one uh, data point that that psychological flexibility piece might be really important uh, in terms of why uh, or helping to explain why uh, this treatment might be helpful. Wow. Wow. And do you think Ibogaine could also be used to treat heroin addiction? It's possible. In the prior study that we did, not not in that veteran study, but in the prior study we did, what we actually found was that in a sample of people who um, had uh, opiate addiction, uh, specifically, um, uh, we had... Uh, I believe there were, uh, yeah, we had individuals who had been experiencing uh, opioid uh, use disorder for at least four years prior to going and having Ibogaine treatment. Um, And for uh, most of them, it had been daily opioid use for that time. Um, 80% of the people in that study said that Ibogaine either eliminated or drastically reduced their withdrawal symptoms, meaning with the one, one dose of Ibogaine, eliminated or drastically reduced their withdrawal symptoms. 50% of the people in that study said that the Ibogaine reduced their craving for opioids. And 25% of the people said that they reported a reduction in craving that lasted for at least three months after Ibogaine. Um, Of the people in that study, 30% reported they never used opioids again after their Ibogaine treatment. Oh my God, it's amazing. Are there any other studies that you've done that have shown uh, positive or negative results around uh, around using psychedelics uh, for healing, whether it be mood disorders or even uh, more physiological maladies? Well, it's important to remember, you know, as we're talking about this from the lens of, you know, 30% never used opioids again, you know, it's always important to remember that the the converse of that is is also true. 70% used opioids again, <laughs> you know, so there's there's always the opposite finding, right? So I, I always, we're reporting these from the positive lens, which is, which is really important. I mean, the fact that 30% of the people didn't use opioids again is amazing. And that's still showing that it's better than the current treatments we have, which I think is right. The last evidence that I saw was that, you know, 95% of people with opioid addiction, you know, relapse within like, you know, the first three weeks or something. So uh, it's powerful treatment, but still there's a lot of people out there that are still challenged and suffering and, and really working hard to find a, a healing path with these, but even with these medicines, which offer still a powerful opportunity. So, um, so these aren't magic bullets. These aren't, you know, going to solve the problems without other important elements of you know, the structure and the other important ingredients that are going to come into this. Part of that is going to be ensuring that we have the right kinds of therapeutic preparation and integration processes, the right kinds of healing environments for people, and coming back to some of the things we've talked about before about community and family and environments and and a social and political structure in our in our society that can uh, all of that that can accept and harness and grow and nurture these types of experiences so that real healing can happen and hopefully eventually so that we aren't fostering environments where these problems take root to begin with. Is there anything you want to cover that you haven't already spoken on? So you can, so when we close this, you can feel it was all set. Can I actually read something? Would that be okay? It's a personal account. And this was the report 
after the second session. The main theme was healing and letting go. Healing came in many forms and feelings. I felt as if pain and sadness and trauma and guilt were draining from my body, as if it were being washed away and cleansed. I felt guided and compelled to let go of hurtful memories and recognized it was time to let go and okay to move on from the past. I felt the music was playing an integral role in guiding where the healing needed to take place in my body, mind, and heart. I felt it flowing through my body as a bright silver light traveling where it needed to go and guiding my thoughts to tranquility and acceptance. I truly felt embraced and taken care of completely by some unnamed force. That force allowed me to be open and willing to dissolve and dissipate the depression that was stuck in my mind. It allowed me to trust in myself and to be comfortable opening my once closed and guarded heart. I had a profoundly clear understanding that everything was happening exactly as it needed to be, and everything will be okay no matter what. The first psilocybin session dramatically broke up and cracked and loosened all the stuck energy and rigid patterns of my mind. Once it was loosened and broken up, in the second session, it was able to clear all that once hardened debris free. Step one, jackhammer my mind and soul and show me that I can survive that pain. Step two, gently and lovingly cleanse everything out and allow myself to let go and to heal. I felt such a strong sense of soft, glowing, healing light, assuring me that there was nothing to fear or feel sorrow for. I felt I was in the presence of a pure and perfect energy that was healing me. I never once felt fear during the session. I knew I was going to be okay. I am okay. And for the first time in my life, I discovered the possibility of what it feels like to love myself. I have never felt that way before. And I truly value the psilocybin journey for showing me that I can honor myself and others as equals on a deep and soulful level. Hey gang, we'll be back with more after this quick break. Sorry for the interruption, more Awakened Underground now. Now that we've explored the scientific perspective, we are now going to explore the shamanic perspective of healing addiction and working with psychedelic plant medicines. Our guest is a personal friend and teacher of mine, Warren Flesh, who has facilitated many ayahuasca ceremonies for me and my family. He has been instrumental to our healing journey as he is an incredible musician and a powerful medicine man. He is coming on our show today to share publicly for the very first time his personal battle with addiction, and his path to healing with iboga and sacred plant medicines. Lastly, because it was requested by some of our faithful listeners, we would like to issue a trigger warning as this episode dives into the depths of real-life addiction experience as well as suicidal ideation. The Awakened Underground Podcast. Could you kind of take us to the beginning and just walk us through? 
Yeah, no, it's a it's it's a pleasure to do that. I think that I was always a kid that kind of saw illusion where other people saw truth and can remember from being a pretty young person feeling somewhat alienated and somewhat cynical about things. And I wasn't exactly sure where that came from and I'm still not exactly sure where that came from and why other people were okay in the situation that I was not okay in. So from a young age, I turned to music, I turned to sports, I turned to other things that were able to alleviate that for me. And then I found myself in a situation that was intolerable to me, which was corporate America. Right. Um, yeah. Working on Wall Street, just very, very contrary to my nature. You worked on Wall Street? I did, yeah. What? I didn't know that. It's wild. And yeah, very similar upbringing. Played in a band, sports, and escaped through that. Had no idea you worked on Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah. I just uh, was wanted to be a musician and was disillusioned with the money that I was making. And then I was working on Wall Street and went to an Ivy League school and kind of had a natural trajectory. And I realized from a very young age that my upbringing specifically the prep school that I went to and the Ivy League College was grooming me to be part of a consumer-based culture that I felt very uncomfortable in. And so a very effective tool for me as a um, an ADHD kid, as somebody who was prescribed Adderall from 14 on, I started taking other pills to take the edge off of that. I was a lifelong cannabis user and... Um, I started taking opioid pills and um, benzodiazepine pills. And I felt invincible under these circumstances. When I took like the right, when I figured out the right alchemy, I could do anything. Yep. I could kind of put on my costume, put on my facade and just do whatever I needed to do. Just be, be a monkey. Warren. You, you, I don't know if we've never gotten to go like this deep uh, and you, you know, it's the um, same thing with me. I was stuck on Adderall at the same age and it was sort of like the, the, you know, the boy or the man that needs an on switch needs an off switch, you know, and you're sort of indoctrinated into that methodology of like hacking yourself or controlling your mood with an, an exterior modality. I had, I had no idea at 14, like same story, seriously. For sure. Well, our birthdays are a day apart, so it's no huge. Oh, my sad brother. What's up? Yeah. <laughs> no huge shock about that. But, you know, so so I felt really alienated and I'd always had a proclivity towards psychedelics. And I had done mushrooms in college and LSD and felt super connected to the music that I was playing and the expression that I had under those circumstances. But... I had also had some negative experiences as well. And I felt at this time in my life, like it's honestly not that easy to remember the specific occurrences during this time because I was so diluted with drugs. But but my drug use was not like partying necessarily. Like I wasn't like doing this to party. I was doing this to survive, right. to get through what I needed to get through to, in order to be the person that my parents or society or whatever it was expected me to be in those moments. And I have a couple moments of clarity within this time. One of them was actually going to an Ibogaine center 
in 2011. I, I was researching Ibogaine. This is like back before the psychedelic renaissance and before people were really talking about this and it was it, it wasn't mainstream at all. And it was literally a Google search about like a cure for opioid withdrawal symptoms. And I stumbled upon Ibogaine. And at the time I was taking probably like three, 400 milligrams a day of oxycodone. I was managing it. I was still doing my job. I was going to work every day. I was wearing a suit and tie and like playing my part. Um, but I talked to some guy in Toronto and you know, he was very forthcoming and very like sales oriented and uh, it proved to be like a big scam. So one of my prevailing messages on this podcast and the theme in general is that the practitioner is just as important as the sacrament. So I had the misfortune of flying from New York City where I was living to Toronto and spending like four hours in a taxi driving north into the, you know, the, the boonies into like wherever like suburbia, Toronto, Canada in the middle of winter and just being like super dope sick and just wanting to kill this guy Oh my god! for like four days. And then him just being like, okay, see you later. Wait, how many days you spent four days with him? I spent like three days with him. I, I got there on like a Thursday and I remember it was like a holiday. This is, this was my thinking. I was like, I, I have like a holiday. It was like, I don't remember president's day or something, Martin Luther King, something in the winter. And I was like, okay, I have like a three-day weekend. I can go kick heroin or kick oxycodone. This is like my opportunity because Ibogaine is a cure. And by the time I get back on Monday, I'm going to be ready to go back to my corporate job. No problem without like this crutch that I've been relying on for years to just get to the place where I, I was at. And so I get there and like this dude is just kind of kicking it on the couch with his girlfriend and. Like, I'm super sick. He gives me some, like, a couple pills, and I feel, like, really weird. And, and it was it was a boga, but it was, like, way under what he was supposed to be giving me, which is understandable because it's super risky to give active opioid addicts large doses of Ibogaine without the proper medical screening, introduction, um, like an EKG. There are various protocols that are very important to ensure the safety because there are cardiac contraindications with using that particular sacrament. And anyway, so the next morning I was like feeling super weird and just like crazy. And he like drove me to a bank to make sure that I paid him. I think it was like 5K, which in 2011, that's Damn. like probably like 12K now or 15K, something like a lot of money to me at the time. Um, but I was making a lot of money at my job. So it was no huge thing. Still, um, Anyway. So he's just like hanging out on the couch, like drinking wine, smoking weed with his girlfriend. I'm like suffering there for like the next two days. He gave me like a, like he went into town and gave me like 10 Xanax so I could sleep for like the night. And then the next morning was like, okay, I, there's a cab to the airport. See you later. What? <laughs> so this was like a pretty shitty experience, but I ended up like immediately, obviously going back to using drugs. There was nothing about that that interrupted my addiction or anything like that. But fast forward probably less than a year later. So this was actually more than a year because this was probably winter of 2011. And fast forward to October 2012. 
I had lost my job. Like six months before this, um, I had only used pharmaceutical drugs up to that point. And I had a girl that introduced me to intravenous cocaine and heroin. And I started using that. And within like a couple of weeks, my life went to absolute, like non, I was not functional. Because I was like hanging out with homeless people in my apartment, which was like this, this really nice apartment in the Corinthian um, in Manhattan on the 48th floor. And there was this helipad uh, for the UN building. The UN building was literally like right below where my apartment was. And they would fly these helicopters back and forth from Brooklyn to the helipad on top of the UN building. And every time I heard a helicopter at this time, I was just so jacked up and just like out of my mind that I thought it was like the FBI. I was in the cocaine psychosis all the time. Um, I remember like people would overdose in my bathroom all the time. Um, one time I remember I was like hanging out with this homeless guy. We were shooting a bunch of Coke and heroin and just like losing our minds. And I had this giant hedge clipper, like this hedge trimmer, like probably the biggest one that you could possibly find. And he was like driving me crazy. And like, I thought he was trying to like steal from me or like I had some weird paranoid thought. This is like this homeless guy. And so I had his head in this hedge clipper and I was like literally thinking in my mind, okay, I'm going to chop this guy's head off. And like, how am I going to dispose the body? Oh my God. What's going to like, like, how am I going to like deal with the aftermath of this? It's going to be like a ton of blood in my, and uh, you know, thank God I had some moment of clarity to not do that. But uh, I was in my bathrobe all day. And typically my day would consist of watching reruns of Keeping Up With The Kardashians or like Gossip Girl. Oh my God in my bed in a bathrobe the bathrobe was like covered in blood i never even left my apartment this was like this was like end stage i was going to die for sure going to die and i didn't really care and i remember one time i was in the bathroom um and i did a shot and it was like one of those ones where immediately when i start to feel the effect you're like okay this this one is it. This is the one. And it's going to kill. And I remember the last thing I saw on my phone was like five o'clock. And I wake up, I come to on the floor of my bathroom and I look at my phone and it's four o'clock. So I've been on the floor of my bathroom for 11 hours, completely unconscious. I passed out on my arm. I had no feeling in my arm. I thought it was going to be amputated. Like there was just like, that was kind of where I was at in my spiritual journey in this incarnation of my life. Right. That's, and, that's the dark night of the soul moment, right? Yeah. But like, you know, and, and there are like so many moments when I just remember like looking in the mirror and trying to like shoot drugs into my neck and just like having a moment of clarity. Like, how did I get here? Like, I'm like, had every advantage in life. And how did I get here where I'm trying to kill myself and I don't actually have the balls to put you know a bullet in my head but i'm clearly like trying to kill myself i for whatever reason despite the horrible negative experience that i had had with ibogaine before i sought out this other guy who i had seen a documentary about his name is dimitri and he's a somewhat well-known ibogaine facilitator practitioner 
And he basically just was like, this is not going to be easy, bro. Like at the time, for those of you that have any concept of, of tolerance or like my, my tolerance was insane. I was doing like a ton of heroin or whatever I could get my hands on and not feeling high, just not feeling anything, just being totally numb and just ready to like, either I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to find a different path. Those are the two choices. And so I'm like, I'm going to give this thing one more shot. And so I went up to upstate New York in really bad shape, very skinny and ghostly pale. I wasn't like really didn't resemble the person that I am today. It's now 10 years later. And this was like a real Ibogaine detox that I experienced. And I had never experienced a sacred ceremony before. And this was presented as a sacred ceremony. It was a, a Gabonese um, origin. Uh, that was the kind of etymology of the ceremony. It was from Gabon, a Buiti ceremony. The person that administered the Ibogaine to me was initiated, was a, a Naganga. This is a, their version of a, a, a page or a shaman in the Buiti tradition. And they put me through, I remember we went out to a tree, made an offering to a tree. It was a very, very amazing ritual around this experience, which to me was very foreign. So I was very judgmental of it at the time. Like, what the hell are these people doing? Like, this is crazy. Like my whole mentality, my whole mindset, my whole psyche was oriented towards Western pharmaceutical, like, I just want to be in a bed and have some headphones on and an eye mask right. and like take this and hopefully it's not that psychoactive. And were you secular at the time? Like, were you a secular, like scientific materialist? Would you identify as being agnostic? Did you have any sort of spiritual upbringing? Like, was this ritual just completely foreign? This ritual was completely foreign to me. I never experienced anything like it. I, I would consider myself probably atheist at that time. I don't think that I had one... Um, moment of spirituality or spiritual anything even despite working with psilocybin and lsd in a recreational setting in college yeah still... in, 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 in times i had but i was completely yeah this time i was i was defeated and uh i didn't have any kind of spirituality spiritual practice nothing i was ready to die so you're at the tree doing this ritual i'm at the tree doing this ritual and actually the it's very interesting because they they put face paint on and it's white and red and that signifies sperm and blood and, and this is actually a life death rebirth archetype ceremony it's a coming it's, it's a rite of passage ceremony it's actually a rite of passage used by the buiti in gabon um for children at around you know adolescent age 14 15 to really become adults, to experience that insane death and rebirth. And um, that's what I can really attribute it. That's the only way that I can describe it really. I mean, I remember he gave me a test dose and I was dope sick at the time. I was really, really sick. I was in a withdrawal, like full on withdrawal. What's a test dose? Just a small amount of, Ibogaine. That's what that means? A test dose, yeah, because they test to make sure that you're not having any kind of adverse reaction to it. Okay. 
And I remember within five minutes of taking the test dose, I was, the dope sickness was gone. Wow. And that was the last time that I ever had the obsession to use drugs. Whoa. Was in that moment. And what happened was he slowly ramped up the amount. It, it, they call it a pyramid. And they eventually like give you as much Ibogaine as you're willing to take, which is very hard to describe. Unless you've experienced this particular sacrament, it's almost impossible to actually verbalize or put into words what you feel. It's a very, very traditional West African equatorial ceremony. Uh, so the, the the instruments that are used in the music, um, it's basically a mouth bow and a very uh, distinct harp. And so the music is very, very distinct. And it's very, um, it's actually like an ancient technology that's used to just chip away at programming and conditioning and right. indoctrination. What and do you mean by mouth bow? It's literally like they have part of it in their mouth and they're like, it's just like an instrument. Right. So, and I think you know this about me. I mean, like, you know, I work with, you know, like most psychedelic medicines you name. Ibogaine is the one medicine I have not had the courage to step to. Yeah. Uh, so, so the, the all of this detail is super informative for me and I'm sure a lot of our listeners. So like, please continue to give us exactly the step-by-step -step you're doing. And thank you for sharing this with us. Warren, yeah. I didn't know this. I had a dream about you the day after your cacao ceremony for your wife, where we were in a maloca in Peru and you were in a business suit and you turned around, looked over your shoulder and your hair was all messed up and your eyes were bloodshot. And you said, you wouldn't believe the stories I have sort of like drunkenly. And I woke up and I, oh, I told Tanya, I said, I had a strange dream about Warren. And I didn't know, I didn't know any of this. And it's so powerful. It's so powerful to hear this. So please, like, keep giving us the step-by-step. -step. And I'm sorry you had to go through this, man, but this is... No, no, it's all good. I'm actually healing. super, super grateful for everything that I've had to go through because... Um, and I remember when I was sitting with this guy, Dimitri, he was also a former very, very severe drug addict. And he was just saying, I'm so grateful for the spirits of the poppy, the spirit of coca, the spirit, all these, like nefarious drugs that he was like singing his gratitude for and i was just like what the hell is this guy saying or thinking and i and and then i had a realization right then and there which is that the drugs these poppies these these kind of demonic substances and, and demonic spirits need us more than we need them the more that we consume them the more that they populate and and it was just like this this different way of looking at it from a kind of a spiritism perspective right that was a very, very interesting way to jump into this experience with Ibogaine. And Ibogaine is basically the most pronounced alkaloid within the aboga plant. Aboga has a ton of different alkaloids, which I found out later on because I, years later, have experienced the sacrament again and experienced the sacrament in its totality, aboga. Um, Ibogaine is used more for detoxing drug addicts because the toxicity is lower in synthetic Ibogaine. It's not entirely synthetic. It actually comes from the Voaconga plant, which is similar to Iboga. It also contains Ibogaine. The, the Voaconga plant and Iboga, as well as the Sananga plant, that comes from South America also contains trace amounts of Ibogaine. Oh, wow. The Ibogaine experience is really unlike anything that one can possibly describe. All that I can say is that 
it was just a complete departure from reality to a point where you're in this this kind of in-between purgatory like i don't exactly like putting words to it doesn't do it any kind of justice but you're in this this strange strange place that you've never experienced before what i can say with any tryptamine whether it's ayahuasca or even 5-MeO-DMT or like mushrooms, something like that. There's always this feeling that we're coming home to something. Right. We're, we're, we're coming into alignment or into, we're merging with source, with the infinite wisdom, with something. With Ibogaine or Iboga, it's not like that at all. It, to me, it felt it feels very, very like, I'm in this primordial dance with my ancestors in this very, very strange place that I don't recognize. Right. So that is what scares me about it. Uh, yeah. Or I should say intimidates me. I hear from you know our, our brothers and sisters that work with this medicine that it's very alien and apathetic, uh, that there's not a lot of warmth to the experience. Uh, is that, I know I'm speaking not from a place of knowledge, did you feel there was an apathy to it or did you feel like there was a spirit to the medicine like something like an ayahuasca where There's you're being There's a very, held very distinct spirit to the medicine, which okay. is not, a, a, it's a very stern spirit. Okay. And the spirit is very direct. Okay. And once this medicine, which is an extremely intelligent, intelligent plant spirit shows you things, it's undeniable. Right. It's not like this could be, but I can interpret it a different way. No, it's a very clear. Then that's something with this medicine I really try to instill on this show is that when you're in the experience, there's no end ifs or buts. The the first thing I, I think when I when I interface with the master teachers is this is not how the movies and TVs, this is not a hallucination. This is more real than real life. This is the realest thing I've ever experienced and it's undeniable there's mm -hmm. no argument you know exactly what it is with no words when it's happening to you and it is humbling yeah and with this particular medicine um you know people talk about ayahuasca all the time and ayahuasca is almost like a buzzword and and people will go and and do ayahuasca or they'll do mushrooms and and they'll experience whatever they experience in four to six hours and very, very typically, they're all eating fruit afterward and talking about the experience and having like a time together. With Iboga or Ibogaine, it's not going to be that process at all. You are, especially when you're detoxing, like I did, and given the amount of Ibogaine that I was given, it was a massive quantity. I could not speak for two weeks. Oh. Like literally two weeks, I could not speak. I would try to like mumble through something and I, I definitely could not walk for at least 72 hours where people needed to like help me to the bathroom, no sleep for at least that time, the two weeks time where you're just laying there in a bed, watching the sun go up and then watching the sun go down and then up and then down. It's very, very, um, <laughs> it doesn't ever feel like it's going to end. Were you in the medicine in those 72 hours still? Yeah. So you were still in the medicine? You were in the medicine for a very, very long time. At, so, at a certain point, were you like, 
oh my God, what if I never go back? Did I, what did I get myself into? Or did you understand while, as it was happening is this is was supposed to happen. I'm exactly where I need to be. Like, did you have lucidity in the, in the experience or was it? Uh, yeah. So you have different phases within the experience. So the first phase is kind of the onset and then what they call the visionary phase of where you have visuals. You, you can literally like, it is so, it is like a, a lucid dream to the point where you imagine something within the aboga space it comes into fruition in front of you whoa it, it it's it like you're connected to the psyche to the the unconscious part of the brain in a very very profound and and unfamiliar way to a point where yeah you're 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 able to access certain things and then and then the unconscious content within the brain becomes visual just in front of and so the first thing that I experienced that was super profound was I was taken to a funeral in Africa. There were a bunch of like what appeared to be pygmy African tribal people uh, burying me. And I was looking down at my lifeless body. And then I made a conscious decision then and there because I knew also that this could kill me because there is a, a very high not high necessarily but higher than any other sacrament um rate of fatality when you consume especially large quantities of ibogaine and aboga so i believe and i don't know this for sure but i strongly believe in my heart that i was given the choice to either depart or to return to my body i remember making a very very solemn commitment to myself and to my ancestors and to my descendants future like within this time frame that i was if i returned to my body i was going to have a different experience and i returned to my body and then i was pretty okay with the fact that i was going to have to suffer i was going to have to feel everything and i want to really because this particular episode is about addiction i want to qualify the fact that number one my experience is not typical it is not common it is not the norm for for ibogaine it's just my experience and number two this is not a silver bullet there is no pain from getting sober from the kind of drug habit that i had that was averted or avoided or circumvented as a result of using the sacrament. I felt every ounce of everything. And the reason why I was able to succeed is because I had a very, very good plan. I had very, very good support. And I had very, very good people around me at that time that were keeping me safe. Very, very important. And I, I spent like two weeks and I've been people like really helped me to do everything. And then I went into a rehab facility for 90 days. A very traditional 12-step based treatment center. And I didn't talk about this experience for years. Other than, you know, mild curiosity, people would ask me about it. But I got very into 12-step recovery. And Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I was going to meetings, sponsoring people. I was working in recovery. 
I, I spent a long time working in sober livings, working in treatment centers, working as a case manager, working as a, a rehab tech. I've done all of this kind of groundwork on the front lines of addiction. So I've seen it firsthand. I've seen exactly how people come into this, come into being drug addicts, come into whatever this this misattunement or misalignment is that that they all of a sudden need to be need to pay services to protect them from themselves. And I've seen that for like a whole wide range of ages and genders and it, it does not discriminate. And one very, very consistent theme among people with addiction is a high level of sensitivity. So people that are not very sensitive maybe perhaps can can exist with the spiritual malady, can exist in a society that's that's callous and and be okay with that. But I knew that I wasn't the kind of guy ever that could go do my corporate job every day, come home, crack a six pack, turn on the game, you know, have like my two kids and my golden retriever and my white picket fence paying a mortgage. Like that wasn't just like, to me that sounded like uh, some kind of, cause I'm going to hell. Right. And to other people that's like the American dream. Right. So I, 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 I couldn't do that. And most of the other people that I experience in addiction, in whatever various phases of recovery are, um, are also in that situation. And what I saw more and more as I traversed the minefield of the addiction recovery industry which is also an extremely toxic industry yeah. of people preying on vulnerable families Ugh. of just like money driven, greedy, very, very like turning people actually into what I have termed as a, a professional patients. I love that. Well, you get, said. Yeah, you yeah. get insurance policies and you get actual like, like it's actually like a form of human trafficking. Oh, it's uh, yeah, it's an atrocity. Yeah, and it, it's going on everywhere. And unfortunately, people who were previously addicted to drugs and haven't had any kind of spiritual awakening or spiritual any kind of um, substance in their lives have, have replaced their addiction with an addiction to money, to prestige, to manipulation and power. Right. And I want to talk about suggestive states. What's a suggestive state? A suggestive state is somebody who is very vulnerable and impressionable and can be easily manipulated. So when people are in a suggestive state, very similar to when somebody drinks ayahuasca or takes mushrooms or that person is in a very suggestive state. When a person is newly sober, that person is also in a very suggestive state. So it's important that a practitioner who is working with these populations be extremely, extremely sensitive to that fact and not be trying to manipulate those people for any kind of self-aggrandizement, any kind of self-fulfillment, any kind of money-driven anything. Yes. Because if, 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 if a person is, then, you know, that's where you get a lot of predatory behavior and a lot of people who shouldn't be serving medicine, who shouldn't be working in treatment, like, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because this is a bit people. One of the biggest things that, you know, the audience for the show walk away with is they 
they how do they find the right person how to find and look this is going to as long as it's illegal that that's going to remain one of the trickiest things about this path but if you see anyone that is that is grandstanding or bringing the energy back to them or going you know flaunting themselves as as the healer if they are saying even they are going to be the ones healing you instead of empowering you and saying you will be healing yourself with the medicine as a tool it is a red flag and i suggest you run you run for the hills. I'm sorry. I, I hope that I hope that's. I didn't mean to cut you off, but and is that in alignment? With- that's absolutely in alignment okay. with what I do. And 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 I am a space holder. I'm a space holder. I don't consider myself a healer or a shaman or any of these things. And it's inappropriate, I think, for anybody to take on those titles or to present themselves in any kind of a pedalistized place within the context of any kind of healing modality. And, and my intention around this podcast, my intention around what I do is to present myself in a very, very transparent and honest way. I'm a human being, I have flaws, I have my own process that I'm working through all the time. Hey gang, pardon the interruption. We'll be back after a quick break from our sponsors. Sorry for the interruption. More Awakened Underground now. Warren, look, I've had the honor to sit with you, brother. You're my my friend. You're my teacher. You're my teacher. Plain and simple. Same with me and Tanya, Jeff, the producer. You're, you're our teacher. And you are humble. And the way you hold space, you don't, I'm the shaman and I'm this or that. You You bring an energy and equanimity and a heart and community. And uh, in those vulnerable states, you are so graceful, uh, even for you to dive into your story like this. Uh, as you know, I only see, get to see you as a healed, awakened man, as a leader, a leader in our community and a friend. I don't, I don't, I don't get to, I don't, I don't know, I didn't know this. I hear, I hear that you healed addiction to Bogue. I didn't know the depths uh, but I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I, because I just pulled you a little bit off track, suggestive states, I want to realign. Is there anything more you want to talk about in terms of suggestive states and the importance of the people around, making sure the people around you are not manipulative or won't, can't take advantage of you or indoctrinate you with a religion or any sort of ideology that uh, could do more harm than good? Yeah, I think that, that, that you're just looking out for people that are trying to be manipulative manipulate you in one way or another because ultimately like the healing happens internally and i'm always looking to increase inner resources i don't want people to be dependent on me i don't want people to be dependent on a substance that's not we're 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 moving away from that i don't want to move back towards that but it actually like segues directly into the next thing that i wanted to talk about because when I was doing the AA thing and I was not necessarily doing the you know plant medicines or anything like that, um, the number one thing that people struggled with was a connection to spirit, connection to higher power, connection to power greater than themselves. That is the basis of the 12-step program. If you're missing that foundation, then that can be highly highly problematic with 
three years or something of sobriety, found myself really in a spiritual crisis once again. And no amount of service or, or meditation or whatever I was trying to do at that time was really alleviating that. And I was having a, a, a large amount of resistance from my community towards exploring plant medicine. Right. Right. And this was back in 2014. Now it's changed a lot. So now the whole culture has become very much more accepting. Oh, really? I still have friends in AA that really could benefit from the medicine and they just can't cross that line because for them it's breaking sobriety. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just the, the doctrine that they took on when they became sober. They just are so, it, to them, it's breaking sobriety. There's and still I, a lot of that. I mean, the truth of the matter is that Bill Wilson describes a white light experience in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the founder of AA? Founder of AA, didn't Bill he Wilson. Found, didn't the founder of AA come up with AA from inspired by lysergic acid? No, no, no. So the white light experience was basically influenced by the Belladonna method, which is a psychedelic, it is a, a nightshade. So it's Datura. And they were using this practice among alcoholics in hospitals and sanitariums what's nightshade deterra it, it it's a very highly neurotoxic psychedelic oh, wow. it's also called toe it it grows everywhere it's literally like it grows here it grow, it's it's very very dangerous but if used in like the right amounts and like i don't know a whole lot about it but they were using it to basically just shock people out of being alcoholics just like create some some intense brain scramble to reset. Right. And so Bill Wilson was one of the people that received this treatment and had what he described as a white light experience. He used an old text, an old Christian text called a, a fellowship called the Oxford Group that had, I think, six steps. And then he turned it into 12 steps and created the um, Alcoholics Anonymous and... I think about 15 or 20 years into his sobriety, started experimenting with LSD. At the time, it was the 1950s, and LSD was legal, and people were, and he found it to be a very effective treatment for alcoholism and very effective for alcoholics. I don't think he ever backed off from that stance, but as an organization, AA never really got behind it. And I think that it's very important also for us to proceed very mindfully and cautiously and not repeat the same mistakes that were made in the 1960s as far as the psychedelic renaissance. Because the truth is that psychedelics are not inherently benevolent. They're not. Psychedelics are tools. Psychedelics can also be weaponized. Psychedelics can be used for nefarious uses, yeah, like we just talked about. People can put use psychedelics to put participants in their circles in suggestive states and manipulate them into doing all types of really harmful things. And this is and this happens all the time. It happens very, very frequently um, within every context of psychedelic use. Cult leaders and sex traffickers. And I mean, it was used in experiments with the CIA. Right. So anyone who, who creates a blanket opinion about something as complex as psychedelics is in many ways missing the point. Right. 
but every anything can be weaponized. Everything is inherently neutral. It could be used for good or bad, whether it's a car or salt. I mean, you can kill yourself with too much water, but I understand that psychedelics are incredibly volatile because of that puts you in a suggestive state. Correct. Yes. Now, also, you have the real, real issue of, of psychedelics being, I don't know, used with, in regards to addiction, like, or any kind of Western paradigm. Like, people think of addiction and any Western medical concept as this black and white. So if somebody is a heroin addict and takes Ibogaine and goes and uses heroin again, then that treatment was a failure. Right. Right. And so that's not how I look at it at all. In fact, I work with addicts now a lot and I have different methodologies and different things that I use. And ultimately, I'm not looking at it from a results base. Like I'm not I'm not judging my work based on did this work or did this not work or did this person stay sober for a year or did this person that's not how I look at it because these medic these medicines, these sacraments don't exist within that paradigm. They just don't. It's just a problematic fit. So you have people quoting these crazy statistics. Ibogaine works 30% of the time. It works 50% of the time. Now, for me, if somebody goes and takes iboga or takes ayahuasca or takes any of these things and never uses drugs again, but 10 years later commits suicide, within the Western paradigm, that would be considered a success. The guy didn't use drugs for 10 years. Right. To me, that's the biggest failure ever. If if somebody comes to me for five days or seven days or however long and feels unconditional love and feels that I like respected and heard and acknowledged and seen and related to in a really genuine and sincere way for that time, feels like the warm embrace of love, then goes and uses again and then maybe even dies. To me, that was a, a clear success. Because what, ultimately, what are we trying to do? We're trying to just transmit the higher frequencies right. into people that are just enveloped in, in self-hatred and negativity and an inability to really transcend childhood wounds and all of these issues. Can that... you speak on, when you talk about addiction as a Western paradigm, I speak often on that the Western model is we take these like symptom clusters and then we go, oh, that's this, that's ADHD, that's depression, that's anxiety. I love that you hit on the, it's the paradigm that addicts are highly sensitive people. Yeah. One of the things with being uh, diagnosed with ADHD, I traveled all over, found different, what the different meaning of it was, tried everything under the sun just to find out that essentially I was hypersensitive. I could hear everything. I could feel everything. I was more of an artist. I could only focus on what I loved, uh, what excited me. And I was just being indoctrinated into a, an industrial era assembly line education system that wanted to put me in a box and conform where from an evolutionary perspective, I was mutating to transcend that box. Can you talk about what you mean when you say the Western framework or rest Western paradigm of addiction, like that model and how these other cultures view something like addiction or these mood disorders? Absolutely. I think that Western culture is trying to put everything in a box. That's how we collectively understand things, whether it's gender or our approach towards homosexuality 
you know, up, up until maybe like the last 30 years or religion or like, it's like literally check a box. What's your ethnicity? Right. What's your religion? Right. So why is this person, why is Cody unable to sit still in class when we're teaching arithmetic and we're teaching, oh, because he has this disorder. And so like, we have a perfect pill for that and we're going to like, like give him a pill and then he's going to be able to just be just fine just like everybody else <laughs> easy peasy problem solved yeah back to back to business as usual and it fits very very well not only into the western education system but also into the, the into the parenting paradigm right like god forbid your your parents would have to like put extra effort or extra thought or extra anything money into your education or your the, the curation of your psyche and it, it's much easier to just, you know, give you a pill. And so I think that most people actually are addicts. We would consider addicts in some way or another because our society is toxic. And I don't think that I'm taking a huge leap of faith to say that. No, it's, it's, it's the real thing is it's whether the addiction is culturally accepted or whether the addiction is culturally rejected. Right. How many of us are coffee addicts, TV addicts, uh, addicted to our car, addicted to our shoes. You put them on every time you leave the house. Doesn't mean it's not potentially detrimental to your health. You know, it doesn't, you know, I agree with you. I do think it's, I even identify and uh, for a long time because I was indoctrinated and my brain chemistry formed around taking a pill every day to function and believing I needed this to be optimal in society. Once I started to have to change the, this, I my mantra became addiction is not stopped, it's replaced. How do I create healthy addictions? How do I habituate and create these neural pathways? So at least my 24 hours, I'm hitting uh, you know, high vibrational techniques. But then at a certain point, that became just a stepping stone. It started to be, well, I need to be fluid. I can't be, even if it's a healthy habit, even if it's meditation, you know, I, I need to be fluid. I can't be regimented. I can't, I can't let even that become an addiction where it's controlling me as opposed to I'm just flowing and feeling through life as opposed to hitting these hallmarks or these rituals that are just inculcated into me. Yeah. Well, we're all in the state of perpetual forgetfulness. And we're all just walking through this minefield trying to like figure it out and trying to grasp for anything that's going to give us containment. Like it's going to contain our psyches when our psyches are completely not evolved for this level of constant stimuli, constant expectations, whatever it is. Right. Like the, the, the speed with which we're evolving. That's where these sacred medicines come in and become very, very helpful because they return us to the essence of who we really are. And the big addiction and the big lie is how we define ourselves. Everybody defines himself or herself a specific way. It starts with your gender, something that you were born into. And then it, it evolves into your, the school that you go to and the job that you choose and the, and the significant other and the family that you have. But this is not the truth of who we are at all. This is just a societal conditioning yeah of who we are that's the first thing that happens to you warren what's your favorite color what do you want to be when you grow up yeah what's your favorite animal yeah well, do you like that what's your favorite ice cream you just start categorizing and picking and identifying with this broad irrational spectrum of things yeah and that's your identity there you are so so what we're doing is we're we're, we're healing wounds and and 
after I had about three years of sobriety, I, I literally called all the people with like a lot of time that I had a huge amount of respect for. I said, what do you think about me going down to South America and doing ayahuasca? Because I'm at a real spiritual crisis here. I don't know what to do. I'm dating all these women that are super toxic, that are like t taking my life force. I'm finding myself in these dynamics of codependency and addictive behavior. And um, I'm not getting any relief. And, I'm, and I, I want to go relapse. I want to go use drugs because I'm back to where I was three years ago. Wow. They all said, it's a trap. It's a trap. Everything you need is within yourself. Is within your is within the steps. Within do the steps again. To get another sponsor. Go to ninety meetings, ninety days. All the things that they say. It's just like stop. And I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm not going to wait around for you know. Yeah, someone to giant, tell you what to do. Yeah. Or the giant piano to fall from an eighty foot skyscraper and hit me in, in the head. You know, like I'm just gonna get on a plane and get the hell out of here. And I went to South America and to Peru. And uh, I found what really kind of catapulted me into where I am now, which is uh, Peruvian curanderismo, plant medicines from that part of the world and the indigenous traditions that ancient technologies that allow us to transcend this time and space. Truth. Allow us to think in between thoughts and feel in between feelings. Truth. Way to, way to call a spade a spade right there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Interdimensional hacking is what I call it. Yeah. Uh, if you know, everyone wants to dress it up, call it this, call it that, spiritual this, spiritual. It's, it's literally hacking consciousness for the highest good of yourself, your family, the all. Yeah. And my question for you is, when you worked with ayahuasca, what was the difference between that from Ibogaine? Did that give you that spiritual connection you were looking for was that the missing piece of the puzzle you know that kept that piano from falling from the skyscraper on you yeah i think that any medicine and any especially when it's presented within the context of a of a more complete ancient technology like ayahuasca by itself without the other plants and the other dietas and without the icaros and without the whole totality of the experience doesn't necessarily amount to what it amounts to when it's put into that context, the cultural context. Same with Iboga. Iboga is presented in a very, very specific way for a reason because these things evolved together in over thousands of years to create an experience that allows us to shed our conditioning, shed our self-limiting beliefs, shed anything that doesn't serve us that that is preventing us from from just being who we are and who we were born to be all the time and when we realize that when when the medicines stop being such a struggle so at first they're a huge struggle because we're facing our darkness we're facing our shadow we're facing all the things we've spent our entire lives not wanting to face and all of a sudden in one fell swoop we have to come head to head with everything and so it's a struggle and i've been through many many i've done hundreds of ceremonies and i've been through many where it was literally hell yeah same. And i just wanted it to end same i just wanted to return to the same asleep self that i had been so that i could turn on the tv and and literally drop out as much as i possibly could and distract myself from the reality of who i was yeah me too but once you get through that 
And then you're able to actually traverse this extremely rich plane of existence in those spaces. It becomes an amazing, amazing gift to be able to really analyze life and consciousness. Now, as far as the differences between ayahuasca and aboga, I mean, I think that you have to start with the similarities and there are none. (laughs) 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 You know, it's, it's really just like a a very, very, um, very different experience. I, I would highly recommend both of them for, for people that are really like into the, the space of exploration, um, a different perspective, a different vantage point, a different ability to to analyze the different spirits. Now, the one thing that I really want to touch on as far as work with plant medicine is the necessity to stay grounded. So however we talk about our society and this existence and all the things that we have to do, at the end of the day, I can be in deep in, in a tryptamine space and I can be having astral projections and I can be guided by my ancestors into the vortex of the primordial existence of the, the, the richness of, of existence, however you want to describe it. But at the end of the day, like two days later, I'm still going to have to pay my taxes. Yeah. I still need to return phone calls. I still need to be like a productive member of society. And I see that as a very cautionary tale also. So you have like the one cautionary tale, which I said before, which is people that are kind of power hungry in one way or another, whether it's money or sex or influence or whatever the case may be. And you have another spectrum of people that are very, very ungrounded within the space. Yeah. And that can also be just as destructive because a person who's ungrounded can do a lot of damage, can make commitments that that they cannot follow through with, can can present the medicine in a way that that is inaccessible to people that are coming in and wanting to find that bridge. Right. So they're not going to find the bridge up in the sky. They're going to find the bridge grounded right here. Right. And so the way that I present medicine, you know, I'm just uh, a human being. I'm just a per- I'm a musician. I'm a space holder. And I don't think that people that drink medicine are in any way more enlightened or more knowledgeable or even more interesting than people that don't drink medicine. I just think that it's a, it's, it's a choice and it's a tool that works for some people. It's not for everybody. It's certainly not for every addict. It's not for every human being either. It's only for those who feel super called to it. I believe really in the concept of attraction rather than promotion. I don't promote this work. I don't try to in any way influence anybody's decisions. I'm just there to hold space for people who want to talk. Ultimately, there's nothing to be afraid of within the psychedelic space, whether it's iboga or ayahuasca or 5-MeO-DMT, any of those things. Because ultimately, the only thing to be afraid of is ourselves. Right. These medicines are not inherently dangerous, and we know that going into it. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, what I can sum up saying is that I'm a person that that was a hopeless drug addict in a very, very profound way. And this was a, a method and a way that I found myself existing within the society in a very functional, productive way. 
right finding happiness and finding fulfillment and finding purpose i want to talk about art and music music is one of the last magic tricks that we have it really is and my goal is to use music to use art to create healing and if the medicine can open people up more to that music and to that healing then i think that that's an amazing place for us to to start and to really create the systems that we need to create in order to be part of the solution. And when I say the solution, I mean that from a very, very broad perspective because there's a lot of problems. I think it's really brilliant for you to bring this up because it's what does it look like? What does what does a being look like after they're healing? They can they can dance, they can sing. They can make art, they can create freely. It's really deprogramming. The healing is a deprogramming to back back to our creative nature, our nature, our natural state as creative beings. When you interface with consciousness, it is ever flowing and changing and creative and expansion. It is pure creative potential. And when you're healed, you become pure creative potential. To sit in circles and see someone be healed and pick up an instrument and play for the first time or sing for the first time when they've never sang and have a beautiful voice, or even if they're not a natural singer, to sing from the heart, you know, free of blockages. That is what being healed looks like. That's what we're that's what we're striving for, is as creative beings. And the disease is a programming, a limited programming that says we're not, we're not that. And we're stifled. What's that box? You know, it's that that's your box and this is what you are and this is who you are. And this is, no, it's not true. It's your anything you want to be. You're everything. You're nothing. And you're just pure creative life force and potential. And yeah. Pure consciousness. Pure, yeah. Pure ability to just, to just be and to be free. And what does freedom mean? Like what, what does that mean? I mean, freedom is also a, a propaganda term. <laughs> And and liberty and like you know, the first thing you think of is like Ben Franklin, and, right? <laughs> and which is obviously has its many many layers of irony, but really freedom is all in the mind. And there are many people that are sitting in in prison that are free, and many people that are in a mansion somewhere in Malibu that are slaves. It's yeah. all in the mind, right? And. You know, it sounds very trite and cliche, but just like free your mind. And and there are many, many methods to, to do that. And psychedelics are one way that people can do that. And meditation is another way. And any kind of spirituality. Because there's a reason, there's a very specific reason right now why these technologies and why spirituality in general is so abundant in the world because we're in a collective spiritual crisis and everybody knows it like we're sitting around and, and i don't think anybody's denying the mess that we're in <laughs> at <laughs> least we're aware of it that's half the battle yeah we're in a very very existential crisis mess and what could we do we could be really serious and overwhelmed and like in some state of anxiety or just complete depression where we're you know, getting together with the guys and going to the bar. You know, you go to the bar, you know for sure that the next morning you're going to wake up miserable. Mm -hmm. And everybody's there together. 
and everybody there is like consuming a, a, a substance and that you know is going to impair your decision making so you know like we are the sum of our experiences we are also the sum of our decisions making bad choices is the, the one thing that i think should be avoided at all costs and we're choosing to do this over and over and over and over again and we're wondering 10 years later why we're like on prozac and miserable and like you know feeling like shit and 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 with the wrong partner and with the wrong career and all of these issues and what we can do with with medicine what we can do with the right kind of therapy is we can interrupt that programming right we can interrupt it and say wait a minute you have a choice for at least like a split second in a blip of time in your life to look at a lot of these choices to look at a lot of these patterns and say okay i can i could maybe step out of this and choose something different because the choices are actually infinite and they don't feel infinite because the brain is literally hijacked on a biological level for addicts and non-addicts. Addiction addict is just a category. It's just a way to describe people. But ultimately, everybody's brain is hijacked to a certain extent. The prefrontal cortex is literally disabled. And a heroin addict, the prefrontal cortex is completely disabled. So a person that's a heroin addict will have zero ability to make a good decision. You're like, oh, why do you keep on doing this? Why are you killing your family? Why, why are you wasting all your money? It's like, like, why are you doing this? It's because the person doesn't have that choice. Their brain is hijacked. They're only thinking about the the survival mechanism within the brain is is has been programmed to attribute sur- the very survival to heroin. So every interaction that a heroinite has with another individual is what is this person trying to get from me? Or what am I trying to get from this person? It's all transactional. Wow. And it's based on that demonic presence within the brain, that that addiction. But it's the same for alcohol. If you're feeling like it's five o'clock and I'm feeling an edge and I want to like take the edge off, that's your hijacked brain trying to get you into that bar, trying to perpetuate the spirit of alcohol, trying to create this madness and confusion in the world. And you know what the real tragedy of all of it is? Is the fact that these companies that are, or cartels or companies, whatever you want to call them, it's all the same. I've been to the Amazon many times and you're driving through and like looking at virgin jungle. And then right next to that virgin jungle is a huge parcel that's been completely knocked down. And what is it? Coca for the narco traffickers. And then right next to that, it's, it's palm trees for palm oil. And then right next to that, it's opium. So literally it's battling, like the consciousness of the planet is in battle mode. And the, the plants are fighting back. They're like, we're tired of like this territory of ours being overtaken by greedy consumerism, capitalist fricking absolute filth. We wanna like return people to themselves because people are not inherently evil. People are not inherently parasitic. I mean, some people think that they are because of the evidence. I mean, it's very hard to argue with evidence, but I don't believe that's true. If I believe that's true, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I would just like surrender to the parasitic nature of it and go and just be like a total toxic parasitic person. And I have that choice. I could, I could go into that frequency anytime, but to me, that sounds like I'd rather kill myself. That's what these medicines allow us to do. It's this disruptor. You say, what's freedom? Freedom is the ability to change at your own will. Freedom is the ability to follow your emotions. To choose your beliefs. Exactly. And, and what I would say is that 
it's not our responsibility or our obligation to change it. It's just our responsibility and our obligation to be the change that we want to see. You know, like I've come to the full circle thing with addiction where I used to be like, I'm in recovery. And if I don't go to a meeting today, then I'm going to like, I'm that much closer to going to the bar. I don't believe that at all. You know, I have a full, I'm fully capable or I have full permission within myself to drink alcohol if I want to drink alcohol. Okay. How would you explain to someone who's an addict or a former addict, the difference between the sacred plant medicines and a lower vibrational modality, like let's say alcohol or, or cocaine, meth, heroin? Well, you have this issue because um, you have certain things like MDMA and ketamine and to a lesser extent LSD and mushrooms that are used recreationally and are also used as sacred sacraments. Um, and I think it all has to do with intentionality. It all has to do with, with how we're holding the container. Right. And I think certain medicines are not appropriate for people with history of addiction because the truth is, as much as I consider myself recovered and not in recovery, my brain was irreversibly changed as a result of being an opioid addict. So I'm going to have, if I ever have like an injury or anything like that, I have a much higher chance of becoming dependent on opioids. If I drink alcohol, I have a much higher, I, my hangovers are way worse than people that have never been addicted to opioids because I go into a withdrawal syndrome within my, my brain. One, your brain is irreversibly changed as a result of it. So I think that for people with serious addiction issues, MDMA and ketamine might not be the best approach necessarily. I, but I don't really work with those medicines. And there are people that work with those medicines that work with addiction. Then I, I respect those people. So I think that, it, that when you're comparing it to like meth and heroin and things like that, it's very, very hard to make that comparison because one is causes a contraction and the other causes expansion. Mm -hmm. So it's really problematic to me when people in recovery or in Alcoholics Anonymous or any of these places make that comparison because most people that are alcoholics, that are drug addicts, are, are taking these drugs to prevent themselves from feeling something, to escape. Whereas you take a, like a, um, a plant medicine, ayahuasca, to feel everything. Yeah. It's the, you, you it's the polar opposite. Absolutely. So... I find that to be highly problematic. And, and most of the people that are honestly like making these claims and making these comparisons and having these judgments are people that have no experience with it. So I don't really waste my time with that. Right. That's wise. I, I, but I, I do really appreciate you compartmentalizing the sacred plant medicines with uh, the other psychedelics, uh, the, the synth synthesized MDMA, ketamine, lysergic acid, uh, just because there's less of a spirit to them. I worked with them ceremonially with correct intention and had a, have had very profound experiences, whether it's with LSD or MDMA, uh, even being able to connect with what we'd call the spirit of ayahuasca, or the spirit of the mushroom, whatever. But it's different and it's apples and oranges. I, actually, I would, I would not even say they're both fruit. Like it's a con an entirely different thing. Hey gang, pardon the interruption. We'll be back after a quick break from our sponsors. And now back to our regular scheduled deprogramming. 
we're getting close to the end of our time. I I want to ask you a few questions though. Mm-hmm. One is you use the term spirit. Mm-hmm. Is there? And I know this is naming the unnameable, describing the undescribable, uh, and it's a it's a fallacy for me to even ask the question. But what do you? Can you try to articulate with our limited linguistic system what you mean when you say spirit for the uninitiated, knowing damn well they will not get it no matter how we phrase it. But are you willing to take a shot at under, at explaining what you mean when you say spirit to the medicine? No. Yeah, of course I am. <laughs> I mean, dude, um, I'm, 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 I get pretty tap dancey when I want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you know? I, I think that um, there are forces that we can't explain, that we can't see, that we can't hear, that we can't perceive with our senses that are influencing and governing our actions, our ideas, our thoughts, and the ultimate trajectory of our lives and of the life of this planet. I think that that alone is a pretty undeniable fact. Yes. If you understand the multidimensional nature of reality and understand the plurality of worlds, understand I can't put a piece of bread on this table right here without it being filled with life. That within you are just billions and trillions of bacteria. This universe is infinite and teeming with life. And it only takes a very simple probability theory to figure that out. And so you look at every being around and imagine in infinity outside of space time that every single one of those beings has reached its full evolutionary potential at some timeline. You are now beginning to grasp what we're dealing with when it comes to the multidimensional nature and when it deals when people call spirits which is a bit animistic but really you're just it just kind of is the sheer probability that you have this higher higher intelligences that have evolved to the point where they're influencing everything i'm sorry to cut you off there no but 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 i think the native americans and uh, indigenous peoples of the americas have really uh, a much more profound grasp of the spirit world than we do and what they believe is the living with in in harmony with nature connects us to the spirit world the spirit of the trees the spirit of the plants the spirit of all uh, native americans strongly believe and indigenous peoples of south america believe that that their ancestors were told by the spirits of the plants by the plants themselves to mix two completely different plants together in uh, when they had access to literally thousands of plants. How could they choose these two particular ones, Chacruna and Ayahuasca, and come up with this sacrament? They're fully connected, and that's how they heal, is, is through connection to spirit. And spirit is very much alive when we're talking about nature. You, you alluded to spirit being stronger in plant medicines than in synthetic and I, I can't really say yes or no to that necessarily or speak to that very much. But what I can say is that when we're in, when we're in old growth forest and we consume these medicines, the spirits are, are alive and they're talking to us and they're yeah. really, really thick. Much, much stronger when or, you're in nature, yeah. Yeah, or we could take them in a, in a very, very sterile environment and sterility is just that it's just a sterile environment you're taking away all of the unexplainable pieces why does it feel so good to be in an old growth forest in nature in a place where the ecosystem has has evolved and with the earth to create this sanctuary right and, and like true balance spiritual balance 
um, ecological balance, all of these things that contribute to the feeling, the, the, the visceral feeling that we get when we sit in an old growth forest or next to a waterfall or you know something magical like that. And I want to I wanna say that, you know, one, the beautiful thing is you don't have to take our, our word for it. If you work with the plant medicines in ceremonial context with the right intention and the right set and setting with the right practitioner, it's clear as day. You can see for yourself. Do not have to take our word for it. But it can get pretty intimidating when you talk about spirits or disembodied consciousness or whatever. But I, what I would like to remind everyone is we are all one. This is our universal family. It's our cosmic family. We are all connected. This is not just healing our own immediate family and healing our community. This is not just healing our relationships with the insects and the plants and the animals. That then extends to ETs, which we're going to, which we're already facing this paradigm. That's going to extend to spirits. We are one universal family, and this is about dissolving and disconnecting and realigning with the energies of 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 us all being mm -hmm. one. Yeah. Can you please speak to some of the healing you've seen these medicines provide beyond addiction from an anecdote from a from a experiential place uh, to try to broaden the minds of to people of what these medicines can help with if they are suffering and in need and the pharmaceutical model has failed them as it failed us. I think that these technologies are, are, are spell breakers. They're, they're miraculous healers. And, and what they can do is they can really just reverse patterns. They can provide a window, an opportunity for a person to step into the light of who they truly are and reject and dispel all of these self-limiting beliefs and all of these self-limiting relationships and 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 really give a person a glimpse into the work that that person needs to do in order to make those changes happen because ultimately the medicine is not going to apologize to your sister because you were a dick the medicine is not going to repair the relationship that you have with your mother because you can't be honest with her like it's just not going to do those things what it's going to do is it's going to give it's going to illuminate your path and whenever i use medicine i pray that it illuminates my path because when you have an illuminated path maybe you can see some of the obstacles maybe you can see some of the traps because there are many many traps that lie in the way between where we are and where we're going many traps in the form of of you know women or men or whatever your thing is or gambling or the bar and a lot of them are disguised as being good things or positive things and when we and when our path is illuminated when we have a much better chance of avoiding obstacles and really flowing with what it is that is our dharma our dharma our highest purpose and once we are in alignment with our dharma then everything else kind of falls into place and, but in order to be in alignment with our dharma or in any kind of alignment or like like profound spiritual fulfillment, we need to cleanse ourselves, clean ourselves, create a situation where we're not holding a lot of toxicity. And so that so so the, with the medicine process is the, the first thing is going to be like a cleanse. 
get rid of all of this stuff get rid of all this energy get rid of all this this crap Everything childhood right. crap so yeah. much of our lives are informed by our first seven years and the indoctrination and the emotion that came with whatever the mother wound whatever the father wound brother or sister wound all of these things so we, so we so we first have to like come to terms with that and like be okay with who we are which sometimes can take one ceremony or it could take a hundred ceremonies i don't know depending on the person yeah <laughs> depending on the person and the willingness to let go and surrender and then we're given the opportunity to really kind of explore and see like what works, what doesn't work. And we're all in this game of life together. I said before, I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm still like, I still have my good days and my bad days and I have friction with people and I have issues and I make mistakes and I, I fall into obstacles all the time. And so the question, like, like we just have to continue to evolve, continue to grow, continue to, be a community where we're calling each other out and because human frailty is human frailty and we're always going to have blind spots and medicine is really good at revealing blind spots and the thing about blind spots is the thing that makes them blind spots is we don't know that we have them <laughs> and so that's why we, we sometimes like medicine can be a really potent tool right right but there are other potent tools too I would say like listen to music, just be just 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 in a state of limited distractibility. And I'm saying this from one person with ADHD to another person with ADHD. Like, hey, bro. Hey. <laughs> it's it, the, the the world is a minefield of distraction. Yeah, man. We don't. I I keep saying it. We don't have an ignorance problem. We have an attention problem as a species. You know, if we can get present. You know, be present with our friends, our our family, our community, our passions yeah just be present as far as addiction goes i think that um that every drug addict no matter how far along that person is has hope there is a white light at the end of that tunnel and we don't have to as as addicts you, you don't have to suffer anymore and so what I'll say is that there are alternative solutions there are mainstream solutions and every solution Ultimately, every lifeboat is worthy of jumping on. Right. Whether it's a traditional one or a traditional rehab center or a psychedelic assisted treatment, it's all, it all can be effective and everybody's unique and everybody can benefit from, from something. Do you have, as we reach our final closing questions, if you were to direct anyone listening to this who's struggling with addiction uh, who or who has a loved one who's struggling, are there any reputable legal uh, retreat centers for Ibogaine or ayahuasca that you feel comfortable plugging uh, or sharing? Uh, you know, I understand this is a really difficult time to share this sort of information, but if anything comes to mind and you feel, you know, no apprehension around, now's the time to share it. Uh, I believe that Ibogaine treatment centers are highly problematic okay not only in the individuals that are running them who are, are very nefarious characters a lot of the time i've heard some real real horror stories and it's kind of the wild west in like mexico and costa rica with opening ibogaine clinics um but the the paradigm itself and giving drug addicts ibogaine it, it can be very very problematic so would you not advise that addicts go to ibogaine despite the you know the perception around it right now 
that it is a alternative, the psychedelic cure for addiction? I believe that Ibogaine, when taken within a larger context, can be effective. I believe that that going to a clinic for a week, doing Ibogaine and coming back is a suicide mission. Okay. What about ayahuasca? Is that a better medicine for people struggling with addiction? Again, um, this it, it is very case by case basis, and I, I work with addicts, and I work with um, I, I create specific protocols for specific people, and there's no one size fits all approach necessarily. Like certain people can benefit from ayahuasca after thirty days of being sober. Other people will need six months. Other people need closer to a year. Um, with a boga, if you were to create a protocol or a program for somebody to to detox using ibogaine, and then to enter into a ninety day treatment facility, minimum ninety days. What what people need is time. What people need is a complete with addiction. The number one thing is a complete shift. Everything needs to change. Circumstances, job, significant other. Because the circumstances that people come into addiction with are the circumstances that are driving them into addiction. Their job, their career, their significant other, all these things. So if they go to do Ibogaine and they're sober, they go right back. They're just pulled right back into their old methodology. way. So... It, it, it's a really difficult, tricky thing, working with addiction. It's one of the most difficult things that, you know, like it, it's a very small part of the work that I do. Um, but it's becoming a larger part because I'm being sought after a lot more by people with addiction now, especially as it's becoming more mainstream. But I believe that everybody who has addiction that wants to experience this can benefit from one thing or another, but it has to be done correctly. Because if it's not done correctly, according to that person's very specific needs and profile, then it can do more harm than good. Got it. And there's no facility you would recommend at this no. juncture? Got it. Okay, last thing, because we're coming to our very, very last. So first, it, are, are you comfortable sharing any of your social media if anyone wants to reach you to follow your music or uh, just as you continue to be more public with your journey? And the work that you do, are you comfortable sharing a handle? Yeah. So my handle is Warren T. Flesh, W-A-R-R-E-N-T-F-L-E-S-C-H. I'm actually in the process of, of becoming more public with what I do and, and sharing my music on a, on a wider scale. Um, so yeah, I'm comfortable with that. And, and we appreciate that. We, we need you and people like you to come forth and be transparent. And we know it's a, it's a risk, but now's the time, you know, we're ringing the bell. That's what this show is ringing the bell for all of our brothers and sisters doing this work to come out of the shadows, come out of the underground, speak their truth, share this experience and, and how it can help our society and help us reset and interrupt these cycles of futility that we've been looping in since time immemorial. The last question I have for you before we go, if you're dying in the gutter, brother, you got one message for the world, one thing to say before you go, 
what song you sing and what do you got to say i'm singing the the, the song of freedom <laughs> redemption song bob marley or like i i have a song called waves of freedom that it's going to be released very very soon and, and the, the sentiment of that song is really just when when we gaze into the sunset we know that we're free but when we're caught up in the cycles what does freedom even mean like what is freedom and my goal and my absolute wish for every single person my prayer is that we find it so that we can all collectively gather and we can all collectively be more conscious participants in the healing of mother earth truth Warren, I love you, brother. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you are and you do. And thank you for being so vulnerable and transparent and coming on this show to speak your truth. It's been a long time coming and I appreciate you to know it. Yeah, seriously. And thank you, Cody. That's our show. Thank you for listening to the Awaken Underground podcast. We appreciate your time, attention, and support. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button. Throughout the season, we will be interviewing doctors, scientists, shamans, thought leaders, and celebrities who work with psychedelic medicines and are ready to come out from the underground to share their stories of healing with the world and what these medicines have to teach us about the true nature of reality. The Awakened Underground is a production of Calvary Audio in association with iHeartRadio. The Awakened Underground is created, hosted, and written by Cody Blue, directed by Tanya Dahl, produced by Cody Blue and Jeff Apple, executive produced by Dana Bernetti and Keegan Rosenberger, co-executive produced by Jason Seagraves and Brandon Morgan, post-supervision by Josh Windish, and sound design and sound editing by Jesse Perlstein. And a very special thanks to Daniel DeLoretto, Eric Klein, Alexander Janisi, Armand Zaidi, David Grillo of Thank You Plant Medicine, our teachers, First Nations people, our ancestors, our families and these sacred plants. <laughs>